study of race, politics, and culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism, and neoliberalism, with your host, Michael Dawson. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome Peter James Husson, Assistant Professor of Afro-American Studies at UCLA in history, the History Department. He's the recent author of a very new and already acclaimed book, Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean. Welcome to the New Dawn Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So let's just start with the jump right into talking about the book, uh, because the book sheds a lot of light on how we think about racial capitalism, as you know much better than I do as a historian. There's certainly, and have, have you written about in the Boston Review um, and elsewhere, there's been a lot of work done by various historians with various outcomes on racial capitalism and slavery. But there's been this gap of thinking historically about racial capitalism in the, during the Gilded Age, early to mid 20th century which, of course, is at the center of what a lot of your writing about. Uh, when you think about how what we think about today as Chase and Citibank and their machinations and imperial activities in the Caribbean, how did the lens of racial capitalism inform or change how you thought about that historical period? It's a, it's a great question, and, and I think the, the first thing I want to take away from that is, I mean, you've really pointed to the fact that this is, is a post-emancipation book, and mm -hmm. it needs to be seen in that light, and, and I think that there's a lot of discussion of the post-emancipation period in terms of thinking about the, the persistence of racial capitalism through the, the afterlife of, of slavery, and I've never been quite comfortable with that term because it's not simply the, the, the afterlife of slavery, it's the renewal and generation and regeneration of new modes of discipline, new modes of social and, and political control, new modes of thinking about citizenship, and, and new modes of understanding the relationship between white supremacy and capitalist accumulation throughout the, the black world, not just the United States and not, not just the Caribbean. For me, you know, it becomes impossible to think about the history of capitalism without thinking about the history of Wall Street. It becomes impossible to think about the history of Wall Street without thinking about the history of banking. And it becomes impossible to think about the history of banking without thinking specifically about about these specific institutions and the individuals within those institutions. So as you point out, I'm looking at, at the, the kind of precursors to Citigroup, the precursors to uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and precursors as well to Canadian institutions like the Royal Bank of Canada, the Bank of Nova Scotia, and the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. When it comes to the question of, of racial capitalism, I think that there is a way, when I began the research and tried to really understand what it was that banking and, and bankers were doing in the imperial context, of course you go through the kind of classic histories of imperialism, so you're, you read Lenin, you read Luxembourg, you read Hobson, uh, Hobson. Um, you read everything up through through the work of, of David Harvey and then you're kind of blown away by how they absolutely ignore any questions of, of race in the yes. imperial and colonial context and Harvey's work for instance is is incredible in terms of the the technical detail 
through which he tries to theorize the the kind of work of finance capitalism, but race is entirely absent in, in, in his work, and it's, that's always been surprising to me, given that a lot of his work was on Baltimore <laughs> in the year, early years. And so I had to kind of turn away from from that literature, or extend that literature, by a reading of the work of, of uh, African-American and Caribbean political economists, everyone from Du Bois to, to C.L.R. James to Walter Rodney to, to Norman Gervan, and to, to try to figure out how one articulates the kind of modes of racial formation and what you could also call racial accumulation alongside the expansion of finance capitalism and capital accumulation. And this to me occurred on uh, uh, through a number of different ways. In the first instance, there's a way that it happens in very personal context. Mm-hmm. You know, through the, you know, I try to tell the stories of individual bankers, and of course, individual bankers are you know largely white, and they're products of the the moment in time that they're existing in. So that the the kind of use of racial slurs, their the kind of imbibed ideologies of racial difference of social Darwinism are just part of the kind of everyday practice, their their everyday ideas of of the world of the Caribbean world. At the same time, that doesn't give you a sense of how that that kind of personal approach to to race and racial capitalism and bankers doesn't give you a sense of how racial capitalism is is operationalized. And so I tried to take the, the project a step further to make a claim that within the kind of discourses and the instrumentalities and practices of banking, racism is codified and, and reproduced. And so this this comes through then in the the ideas ideas of racial difference that are not often spoken of but are necessary to the forms of banking contracts the ideas of racial difference that are not always spoken of but are are uh, foundational to the kind of institutional setups of banks as they move into the colonial context and especially the ideas of racial difference that are never spoken of of, of but are necessary to the kind of legal apparatus uh, that bankers set up to move into the colonial world. So then, in a, in a sense, at the, the kind of basis of the kind of financial instrumentalities, of the legal regimes, of the institutional forms that bankers create, is an idea of race and an idea of white supremacy and an attempt to not only reproduce capital in the colonial spheres and, and, and reproduce capital accumulation for themselves in the colonial spheres, but to reproduce and extend white supremacy. Sometimes this, this kind of dovetails with the U- U.S. colonial project. Sometimes they're very clear that they have, they're not interested in a kind of national framework. They're interested strictly in kind of capital accumulation on the global scale of global white supremacy. One of the well, there's several interesting things about what you just said, but one of the interesting points I took away from the book was how the extension of empire into the Caribbean through the work of these North American, both as you point out, U.S. and Canadian financial institutions, remade and formed, in some cases, racial hierarchies throughout the Caribbean. And that indeed, it was interesting, and I've been reread Hobson recently and mm-hmm. was thinking about in whose service is empire, because it's not the simple question that, you know, right. that... Uh, naive view might have it, is that the financial institutions themselves sometimes worked with the state, sometimes did not. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, there's two important points here. One, one I mean, this, the first point that you made about how they reinscribe and reproduce racial difference in the Caribbean, and you see this sometimes on the level of, of financial abstractions through which U.S. elites, U.S. bankers are talking to Caribbean elites, and, and this is occurring through a, a conversation between white people, effectively. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's 
you know, the Spanish-descended whites of the Caribbean or the French-descended whites of the Caribbean and uh, with, with white Americans. But at the same time, you see institutions like, like Citibank, who are very heavily invested in Cuban sugar plantations and are, and are working with, with um, companies like the United Fruit Company to bring in black labor into the Caribbean. And, and you know, they, they institute what George Padmore calls a slave trade of, mm-hmm. of Haitian and Jamaican workers into the Caribbean in the, in the 1920s. And this is a clearly racialized. It's, it's they're, 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 they're looking for cheap labor and they see black workers as the cheapest labor. So Citibank and, and other institutions were, were very clear about reproducing a, a vision of, of, of the hierarchy, of, a racial hierarchy around labor when it came to importing uh, Haitian and Jamaican workers to, to work on Cuban sugar plantations. And the second question is, you know, the, the, the kind of competing interests of finance capital mm-hmm. and, and what became, what I found was a, a problem for me that I had to work through in terms of researching and writing the book is that the, this idea of American imperialism as something that's cohesive, that's something that's, that's hegemon, hegemonic and something that's triumphal at the end of the day doesn't work. Yeah. And, and on one level you had, you had Canadian institutions who in some times were, were uh, more powerful in the Caribbean than the U.S. institutions and were the major rivals of, of Citibank and, and the Chase. But you also saw a, sometimes a kind of collaborative project through which the U.S. bankers were working with their European brothers, as it were, or with their Canadian brothers, and they weren't always working in, in concert with, with the State Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that their vision of capitalism was not a national vision at the same time you know it, it was it was an international vision these men were, were cosmopolitan individuals who really saw beyond borders um, which didn't mean that they 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 saw all countries equally and it didn't mean that they saw all race, races equally but they were absolutely interested in the movement of, of capital um, across you know through a, a kind of borderless world one of the other consequences of this remaking of the Caribbean through financialist, various forms of extension of financialization and global capitalism was that Caribbean elites in different national settings reacted very differently to the sort of racial politics. Uh, Can you say a little bit, for example, how Haitian elites had to rethink what their roots were, what you know, their myths were versus maybe Dominican elites as an evidence. Absolutely, example. absolutely, and, and I mean, I think this this is a the the, the Haitian uh, study is a, a really kind of classic study that that someone like J. Michael Dash, I think, whose work has been really influential in mine, has re- has really talked about, and this is the the sense that the the when the U.S. occupation of Haiti began in 1915. It opened up a whole set of, of humiliations of the Haitian elite. Many of them had been educated in, in French schools. They they saw their kind of intellectual and cultural lineage through France, even given the history of, of the Haitian Revolution and, and the, the kind of battles that they had had historically with, with France since the era of slavery. But when the U.S. arrived, the, the Americans quickly reminded the Haitian elite that no matter their color, they simply weren't French, that they weren't part of European civilization. And so the U.S. imported the, the kind of culture of, of Jim Crow and the kind of racism of Jim Crow into Haiti. American officers would be upset if the Haitian elite wanted to dance with white women at, at, at social events. And the, the Marines generally 
treated the Haitian elite like they were black peasants. This created a kind of crisis of, of consciousness amongst the Haitian elite, where they suddenly realized we're no longer, if not necessarily white, we're no longer part of a European civilization. We never were part of a European civilization, and, and our cultural roots are not, in fact, in Europe, but they're somewhere else. And it was really through the work of, of Jean-Priest Mars and, and other um, Haitian intellectuals who were like, our roots are in Africa. And our roots are, are, in, are in and with the Haitian pe uh, peasantry. And so the, there was a turn away from Europe and a return to Africa, a return to the Haitian pe peasantry, and an embrace of an indigenous, uh, effectively indigenous Haitian culture at this time. In Cuba and the Dominican Republic, the elite didn't necessarily have the, that, that kind of, the, that turn. In fact, the, the, Haitian, the Cuban elite and many Cuban intellectuals they had a more kind of ambivalent relationship to blackness in Africa through the, the late 1920s and, and early 1930s. For them, the issue in part was the Haitians. It was the, the, the view that the, given the fact of kind of prolonged uh, unemployment in, in, in Cuba due to the kind of crisis of sugar, due to the, the debt crisis that was imposed on them by, by Wall Street, especially by the Chase Bank, there's a kind of rise of nativist and nationalist sentiment in Cuba that, that led to a real anger towards uh, immigrants in the country, especially Haitian and, and Jamaican immigrants. So there was, there was violence against Haitian and Jamaican immigrants. There was a move to deport as many uh, Haitian and Jamaican immigrants as possible. And there was a real discourse around the, 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 the grand tragedy of Cuba, which was seen as its kind of increasing Africanization through the, the, uh, the, the kind of previous decade of arrival of black Caribbean, black West Indian immigrants. So on one level you see Cuban writers turning to 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 Africa as a kind of uh, bulwark against financial modernity and, and whiteness and modes of racial capitalism. You see this in the writing of people like Augustine Acosta and Alejo Carpentier. On another level, you see this anti-immigrant, anti-black discourse emerging. So it's a really kind of contradictory thing within within Cuba. The Dominican Republic, they didn't embrace Africa, as, as no. we know. And once Trujillo came, came to power, he basically supervised the mass murders of, of Haitians in, in the, the kind of infamous Parsley Massacre of, of 1937, which, which saw the, the killings of, 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 I think, tens of thousands of, of, of Haitians and Dominicans of Haitian descent and Dominicans who were black along the Dominican-Haitian border. In, in fact, it seems like, from what I mean, I've seen, I mean, you explicit, are quite explicit and detailed about, at least in the Dominican case, maybe to a much lesser degree in the Cuban case, a linking of anti-imperialism to anti-blackness, right. Uh, right. which is sort of opposite of what we see in the in, ha in Haiti. Absolutely, absolutely, and that was a really surprising thing to me, where you you see the this this critique of finance capital in especially in Cuba and to some degree in in the Dominican Republic tied to, I mean, there's a collapsing of, of blackness with Americanness and finance capital, which is, is projected onto the body of, of Haitian and, and Jamaican workers who are seen as the kind of representatives of U.S. finance capitalism. And this seems, you know, kind of counterintuitive and, and was surprising to me when I kind of worked through it. I had a, a difficult time trying to understand actually what was happening here. But it was, it's, it's, it, it gives you a sense, I think, of the kind of flexibility and, and malleability of 
uh, racial discourse and, 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 and discourses of anti-blackness and the kind of shifting terrains of racial capitalism according to, to various national contexts. One, one of the ways we started was that you mentioned the absence of a lens of racial analysis or race as, a, as an analytical category in the work of everybody from Rosa Luxemburg through Lenin, mm. through David Harvey today, and some of my colleagues at the University of Chicago, <laughs> and others who for now remain unnamed. That could be a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> but one of the positive aspects of your work and something that I think many of us have been trying to recover is the analysis of racial capitalism that was done in the early to mid 20th century mm. by people like George Padmore, mm. even someone like Langston Hughes. Some, as you point out, there's a common turn influence wing to that discourse, uh, which Padmore and others are central to. But there's also a nationalist uh, anti-imperialism or indigenous, uh, I think was, the, was the one of the ways you termed it. Can you say a little bit more about that and what the, how, what the critique looked like and some of the differences and how various black critics of financial capitalism and imperialism were thinking about the intersection of race and capitalism during that period? Yeah, I mean, and it's it's a great question, and it's something I've again I've been thinking about a lot. I, you know, when we think about racial capitalism, I think most of us in in North America get the 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 term through through Cedric Robinson, Absolutely. of course, through through Black Marxism and through the the kind of incredible work that that he's done on it and and done to kind of preserve that analysis. When for for a long time it was it, it's been difficult, even though we've all been saying it, or at least Black scholars have been saying it, but it's been a, it's been difficult to to be taken seriously if you're saying that race is articulated through capitalism and vice versa. And we need to look at both simultaneously and we need to talk about white supremacy alongside capitalism, race alongside of class. In the same way that until recently it was, you know, even though it was black scholars who were talking about capitalism and slavery, it was very difficult to put that on the table and be, be taken seriously. But even even though Robinson is the one who who's through which we kind of have the term racial capitalism, the concept has been around, as, as you're suggesting, for a much longer time. And we, we can, for me, I think, as you point out, George Padmore is, is the most important figure in, in this regard. And, and his entire body of work, in some ways, is, is a very sophisticated understanding of, of racial capitalism, especially in an international context and in, in relationship to, to kind of uh, global imperialisms. His first monograph is Life and Struggles in, of Negro Toilers, published in, in the late 1920s, early 1930s. I can't remember the precise date. Yeah, I have it somewhere um, on a shelf somewhere. I've got a PDF. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's an incredible book in as much as it's a global book. I mean, he, tr he does try to look at black populations everywhere, in, in the Caribbean, in the United States, in Africa, everywhere and and he's very clear of understanding how what he calls national oppression which which I, kind of is is a substitute i think at that time for racial oppression is is linked it's a, it's to version. exactly is linked to 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 capitalism and and it's Lenin's version in part because i mean it was written under the auspices of the common turn but the 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 interesting thing about the history of that book is that even when when padmore broke with the, the communist party that he held on to the book and actually mm -hmm. would would sell it after he left to to try to raise money for his for his other projects and i think the kind of analysis within it is is pretty consistent through up to his his last book, Pan-Africanism or Communism, which is a book that surprisingly it remains out of print and remains unsighted and remains 
rarely discussed. I also think the the problem with with this work and and there's there's any number of authors beyond Padmore. I mean James, as well as a long history of South African writers who have who have talked about racial capitalism in very very explicit ways. I think the difficulty with with Padmore is once he broke with the Communist Party beyond his death, many black writers refused to to touch him, and mm-hmm. especially many black black Marxist writers that they saw him as as kind of heretical as a kind of pariah who who had kind of turned towards bourgeois cultural nationalism and sacrificed a kind of pure analysis of, of capitalism. I think he's a much more complicated figure than that. I, I think I think his analysis his his cultural nationalism is 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 always tempered in a, in a particular way. He doesn't abandon communism. He doesn't abandon an analysis of of Marxism to become some kind of vulgar black nationalist. But you can see in in everything from James Hooker's biography of, of Padmore, which is, is strangely is, is kind of embittered and dismisses of him and kind of you know, it's it's a it's a great book in terms of of being the first biography of Padmore, but it's really I think limited in terms of its analysis, both getting historical things historically wrong in some cases, but being actually quite dismissive of Padmore as a as a person. And and later books beyond that kind of continue on that vein. I mean, there hasn't been a real, uh, I think, proper embrace of, of Padmore, though I know, you know, a lot of scholars at the University of the West Indies in, in Trinidad in particular have tried to kind of reclaim him and, and reassess his, his legacy. But the, so I think the, the, the short answer to that is, you know, Padmore is is one of, of a number of, of authors who kind of emerges in, emerge in the 1920s and 1930s who who are thinking about racial capitalism um, without explicitly naming it racial capitalism, but are really thinking about it in terms of an international project and, and through a critique of, of imperialism. And I think this is something that we sometimes lose now when we talk about racial capitalism because it becomes racial capitalism in one country, effectively, and there's yes. a kind of American exceptionalism that, that goes along with it. I think one of the other problems um, that losing Padmore's legacies in our intellectual and political discussion is problematic for and I think, as in my own work on blacks in and out of the left, I was reading a number of black radicals, some from the U.S., many from the Caribbean, working in the early in the 1910s and the mm-hmm. early 1920s. And part of the problem when you, when you read Cyril Briggs, Hubert Harrison, right. and Harry Haywood, and his right. book Black Bolshevik, which also needs to be recovered, right. is that they took racial capitalism as a fact. Right, right. And so they're trying to work through organizational questions. And in fact, some of the same organizational questions that my generation was trying to work through in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But without really thinking through necessarily the, I don't know, this is partly due to the, I mean, in one sense, the reason we end up with talking about the national question in, in, Marxist, in, in Marxist discourses in the, throughout the 20th century because of the work of people like Harry Haywood in the common turn itself. Right, right, right. On the other hand, though, the capitalism part of it is really never fundamentally examined. Like, what does capitalism look like in the early 20th century, and what, how does it relate to empire and race? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that analysis really doesn't get carried out to the degree, except for people like Padmore. Right. And, some of the, and some of the scholars and intellectuals in places like Africa, that those of us who are 
by nature American exceptionalists don't refuse to look at. Right, right. And this is, you know, I, I kind of came across the, the South African literature when I was kind of marking up the page proofs of Bankers and Empire and, and, and realized just how, how deep and rich that historiography is. And everyone from, just to name any number of people, Ruth First, Harold Wolpe, uh, Martin Legasic, and, and especially Neville Alexander, who, who I think was the most important figure in terms of, of bringing an, an analysis of racial capitalism into the Azanian liberation struggle as an analytic and kind of bringing a certain kind of Marxist analysis into Pan-Africanist discourses in, in, in South and Southern Africa. And what I found with the South African material is that they, they move they quickly move beyond the, the register of political philosophy into the register of political economy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is important in terms of getting to what you're saying about the analysis of capitalism, because they're very, very clear about the, the ways in which racial or white supremacist discourses shift according to both the kind of the capital and racial needs of the South African states and the racial uh, of the South African state and the racial and capital needs of South African capital and global capital. And they're mm-hmm. very, very clear about this. And and they don't limit it to South Africa. I mean, they're also looking at Namibia. They're also looking at, at Mozambique. They're also looking at other places. So I think we we, we need to, to reclaim that. And and I think there's also a way that, you know, another name to add to, to the list that you just went went through is, is Claude McKay. Yeah, um, yep. and, and Claude McKay is an interesting figure, I mean, in terms of his entire biography, because he also was, was one of the first to, to travel to Moscow and to, mm-hmm. to, to, to try to explain to the Soviets what was happening to black people in the United States and to explain the, the, the limits of a certain kind of dogmatic Marxist analysis um, when it came to, to colonial people and to, when it came to, to black people. But of course, you know, McKay also found that Marxist analysis was too dry, you know, and, and, and he was a poet and, and a novelist. And so the, the weakness of that is, is he, he abandons political economy if he ever, ever embraced it to begin with. But I think the, the, the good thing about that is that in someone like McKay, and, and I think also in someone like, like Padmore, it allows us to get away from a kind of sectarian approach to these these questions and I find that the 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 kind of debates that I'm seeing within within the left especially in places like Jacobin to to a lesser degree in places like uh, viewpoint magazine which which has recovered who have recovered um, Harry Haywood to some some extent and kind of the the black belt thesis but but I feel like there's a way in which I think contemporary black authors feel kind of excluded from those spaces and part of the reason that that we feel excluded from those spaces because is because we're not interested in in any kind of sectarian marxism yep. we're all we're bad marxists and and i think we been should there, be able to that. yeah we've been there done that you know <laughs> Let's move on. from our you know our our, our um, first encounters with the spartacus leagues and when we were 17 or whatever but but i think you know i think there's something about being both bad cultural nationalists and and bad Marxists and mm-hmm. and and finding a different line to work there and 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 then if you know finding the institutional critique from that it's also a, for me as as a, as a student and as a as a writer and as an as an educator you realize that you, you one needs to move away from a kind of sectarian analysis to actually do historical work i mean the archives are not sectarian they're they're complex and paradoxical 
places. Messy. And they're they're messy. They're noisy and they're messy. And and I found this with the book is that I just I couldn't just you know bring Lenin into the Caribbean or bring Harvey into the Caribbean or or bring. I mean, even Cedric Robinson into the Caribbean. I, I needed to kind of really figure out what these people were saying, what what institutions were doing, what individuals were doing, and then, to to borrow from Fanon, stretch Marxism to to understand the colonial question. It's in some ways, I think part of the way I think about the work as well is that it's not a sectarian question because we actually have historical archives. Right. We have, in thinking about the contemporary moment, we can do contemporary political economy and understand the nature of the intersection of what do systems of racial domination look like today, what do they look like, how they've changed, how do they interact with the evolution of, of capital, capitalist dynamics on a global and national scale. But it's also, in some ways, I think I occasionally get accused of being anti-philosophical. It's not hmm. that I'm anti-philosophical, but I think philosophical systems have to be interrogated by empirical reality, Absolutely. whether they're historical or contemporary. And if a philosophical theory of how Marxism should be doesn't correspond with reality, I have a problem. Absolutely. And I, yeah, and, and again, this is, this is exactly the problem that, that I had in terms of bringing certain kind of tropes within Marxist philosophy to understand, um, not just the Caribbean, but to understand banking and, and you know, to, to actually get into banking archives and try to figure out what banks were doing. I found that the, the Marxist literature just didn't, didn't do it for me. But I also think that we also forget that philosophy and theory needs to be backed by a level of empiricism, yes. but it's also carried by language, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think that as a historian, I realized, you know, the basic thing that we do is is tell stories. And, and so I had to kind of tell a story of, of banking that illustrated, described certain practices, as opposed to having a theory of banking and trying to kind of push a story onto it. And so I tried to write a book that's actually readable to some degree, mm -hmm. and that allows you to walk through the con context, walk through the kind of empirical ground, and and give you something that that I would hope is is philosophical, even as it is extremely material. Your story sort of ends with the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about what happens under um, in the Dominican Republic in the mm -hmm. '30s and '40s to some degree, and same thing with Cuba and and Haiti, but. To what degree do you see like some of the persistence of the patterns that were established during the period that you're writing about continue into this period, if at all? It's what what I found. What I found is that bankers look to the 1920s. Contemporary bankers look to the 1920s as a golden age of, of financial practice, and and they're very clear about this. If you read the the kind of corporate biography of of Citibank published by Harvard University Press, which is um, has an introduction from the the late business historian Alfred Chandler, and, and is part of the Harvard Business School kind of series. It's an amazing book. They had complete access to to the Citibank archives. They had a, a team of of researchers, and they you know they use a kind of managerial model of of business history to understand Citibank's practices. But they're also very clear. They're writing history to understand how to move forward into the future. The, the, the book is written as an internal policy document for the bank. And what they want to do is figure out how they can use the past to affect regulatory reform in the present. And what they want to do is 
break the regulatory reform of the New Deal. They want to break the regula regulatory reform of Glass-Steagall, which had separated commercial from investment, investment banking. banking. And, and it was the collapsing of, of commercial and investment banking that led to Citibank's tremendous growth through the 1920s. It led to the kind of era of speculation that we, we know of, of before the, the Great Depression. And for a moment, it was incredible. I mean, the stock price of the bank was soaring, the profits were, were soaring, capital was being kind of plowed back, plowed towards Citibank's shareholders and investors. And it was this kind of delirious age of, of speculation that, that obviously came to, to an end in the 1930s and, and with this uh, regulatory reform they don't look at the at this period as as one of leading to collapse they just look at it as a golden age and so they were very clear that look okay what we're going to look at the past to find out what it what is the kind of most productive era of our history how can we replicate that and so by the time we get into the 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 1970s and 1980s they're slowly chipping away at glastigal they're looking at ways of of collapsing uh, commercial and investment banking and then they finally get to the the merger of Travelers Life, the insurance group, with with the Citibank under the the bank president of the time, Stanford Whale, and when this merger happens, it's actually illegal according to federal banking legislation. But Clinton, through the Financial Services Modernization Act, allows you know basically gets rid of of New Deal banking era reform, allows this era of of financial uh, liberalism. Of, of deregulation and then allows the merger to stand and so the 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 regulations allowing Citigroup to 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 merge with Traveler's Life um, are created after the fact. I, I saw two parallels after reading your book the second time. One was the and I think it speaks to how successful they were in modeling the 1920s. Mm. One parallel was the ability to go overseas or into new markets, like such as a subprime market, and essentially lie about the degree to which there's any risks associated with these new financial instruments that they're selling that generate just extraordinary profits right. for these financial institutions. And they did it with sort of sugar bonds and right. bonds, various bonds, national bonds being sold in the Caribbean and Latin America in the, in the 20s. 20s. You did the same, see the same thing throughout the 80s, 90s, and through this century. The other parallel, which was closely linked, was that the people that are, everybody suffers at the end when the thing blows mm -hmm. up. The people that suffer most are often people of color, because right. <laughs> they're right. targeted. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's one of the aspects of racial capitalism, is that who's the most vulnerable, who can we exploit the right. most, either through labor practices or selling, or you know, financial practices. And that's, that's the other parallel I saw as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much I could add to that comment. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it's it, it's always third world people. It's always black people. I mean, it's it's this is going back, you know, some 500 years now. And, and there's never, you know, we talk about regulatory reform or we talk about reforming banks, but it's never reform reforms that that occur to help to help the people who need the help, the, the mm -hmm. most help and who are the most vulnerable to this. And it's it's amazing. And I think, you know, going back to the to Haiti, Haiti's incredible to me because everyone talks about Haiti being the poorest country in in the hemisphere, but it's also a country that generates enormous wealth for everybody in in, in the hemisphere. Yes. Going from, you know, the, the French colonial era to the kind of ongoing UN occupation to the kind of relief work that that occurred after the the, the earthquake, people are making 
tons of money from Haiti. And, starting and with France and the reparations that are still France, being paid. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and the U.S. is saying, we want some of that too. Yeah, and now Canada's trying to get <laughs> in there and, yeah. and, you know, kind of bolster its 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 uh, presence on the, on the world stage. So, you know, for, for people who are so poor who have nothing, we've all been very um, uh, generative to capital. Yes. So, to switch gears slightly... As part of the Racing Capitalism Project, you know, there's local cores at different universities that are trying to do this work in various ways. University of Washington is one where it's in, as well as NYU, where there's interesting projects that are being started or, or, or are well on their way to being generated. What's being done here locally at UCLA? I know there's several people, or your colleagues, that are working with you to try to pull something together. Yeah, the, well, I mean, let me, I could go through any, any number of, of people who are doing great work here. I mean, Jamima Pierre is working on questions of, of race and uh, race in Africa, um, is, is currently completing a book on race and capitalism, well, and starting a book on the kind of racial, of, on racial capitalism and resource extraction in Goodness. West Africa. Uh, Hannah Appel, um, an anthropologist like uh, like Dr. Pierre, is is uh, also doing a book on, on infrastructure and, and is, I think, actually going to start looking at banking in West Africa. Um, obviously, Ananya Roy, I'm not even sure how many projects she, she's involved in, but is, is really involved in a kind of transnational analysis of, of racial capitalism and is, is really starting to draw um, on the work of, of W.E.B. Du Bois and, and other scholars to do that. Eric Avila has, has been working on race and, and urban history, especially within the Southern California context in, in Los Angeles. Robin Kelly, of course, I mean, doing any number of, of projects at, at this time. So there's there's a real uh, cluster of, of people here, and I could I could name name more names. But I think that the thing that we're becoming most interested in, especially as it it relates to this kind of national consortium, is to think about the international context. How do we think about imperialism? How do we think about neoliberalism in, in its its global context? How do we understand questions of, of racial capitalism with the kind of immigrant and refugee crisis that we're seeing worldwide? How do we understand racial capitalism with the kind of rise of fascisms worldwide? So I think the, the idea here is to, you know, a lot of us really want to move beyond the United States, look at, at, at the Caribbean, look at, at Africa, look at Asia, and also begin to, to, and, and I, I feel almost embarrassed saying this, but to almost to, to take seriously the literatures that are coming um, out of these places and to really de-center de the kind of North American Academy and the North American publishing industry in terms of the kind of work that it's doing. And, you know, resources permitting, the idea would be to have, to expand this to, to really begin having exchanges with with scholars at the University of the West Indies, at the University of Ghana, at South African universities, and also to, to move beyond English as a kind of primary language of, of, of analysis of, of racial capitalism and to see what's happening elsewhere. So I think this, you know, the, the work that, you know, R Robinson, Cedric Robinson had done on, on racial capitalism provides a kind of opening for us to, to, to think both in terms of political economy and political philosophy, both and, and in terms of history, but also in terms of, of the global aspects of, of, of white supremacy and racial capitalism. I, th I think the work uh, of your colleagues that you just named, and, and I'm thinking in particular the works of Professors Pierre and Appel is 
important, sadly, for it's great in its own right, but it's, it's sadly needed for the reasons we've already said. Just as the work that we had talked about earlier of people like Harvey is missing any analysis of race and systems of racial domination, how they intersect with capitalism. There's also a very interesting literature on the relationship between modern capitalism, financialization, and resource extraction in places like Italy now. Right. But again, no no study of what it means in, Turkey, in, the, in the context of empire, colonialism, neocolonialism, and race. Right. And I think that the thing also to add to that is, I mean, especially being on, on the West Coast, we tend to think about racial capitalism through black bodies. I mean, I think just in terms of the writers that we refer to, the histories that we refer to. But if you look in, in West Africa right now, we, we can't not talk about the Chinese presence. We can't no, we talk cannot. about Chinese investment funds, Chinese mining, and what they're doing environmentally in Ghana, um, what they're doing in terms of, of trying to displace British capital, South African capital, U.S. capital. And so I think there's something very interesting to be doing this work from Los Angeles to have it situated within a kind of Pacific Rim context, as well as to talk about the kind of brown folk and racial capitalism. And I mean, the geography of, of Los Angeles is one of, of Mexican and Central American immigration and race. And, and I think we need to, to really push and argue for South-South solidarities when it comes to these critiques and to, to borrow from each other and to learn from each other across racial lines. Again, that's why your work is, is so important here, is that even if we think about China and the, and the recolonization of Africa and what it means, for example, food resources for indigenous folks in Africa, it's also, we see the same process and the same competition between imperial powers, including old ones and new ones in places like Brazil. Right. So right. It's, it's also a Western hemisphere question right. of how does race get remade in the period of uh, rising uh, imperial power on one hand and declining imperial power on the other? Absolutely, and I think again the the African context is is important, and the, and the Pacific context is important because you see this remilitarization of Africa through the Absolutely. kind of expansion of U.S. drone bases, yes. through the 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 attempts by European countries to to get involved in in the kind of financialization of of Africa, in part to check. Chinese influence and to kind of assert Western hegemony, as it were, over Africa before the Chinese can get in there. And one of the reasons that the African command of the U.S. Army is one of the largest global commands in the world right now is precisely that. Right. Um, right. I wish to thank you. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. I hope we can do it again. Yeah, I'm sure we can.